This podcast is proud to be part of the TalkSport Fan Network. TalkSport. Powered by fans. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. The TalkSport Fan Network is proudly supported by McDelivery, bringing you the food you love. McDelivery brings a top-tier lineup of food right to your door. No matter the results, you'll always be winning with McDelivery. Order now on the McDonald's app and you'll get rewards points delivered too. So that ordering today means some tasty rewards for tomorrow. Only via app at participating restaurants. 18 plus rewards registration required. Points only on menu items, delivery fee and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com. With winter weather making it harder to stay active, here's a gift idea for the outdoor adventurer in your life. The Allbirds Mizzle Collection. The Allbirds Mizzle is designed for those who won't take snow for an answer, featuring built-in puddle guard technology to keep the winter wonderland where it belongs, not in your shoe. The weather-ready sole offers enhanced traction, so you go on winter runs with confidence. And it's made with premium ZQ Merino wool, a naturally insulating material that keeps your feet warm and sports a low environmental impact. Allbirds displays their carbon footprint right on the shoe, so you can see the difference for yourself. On top of that, they actually offset the carbon footprint to zero, making their missile collection completely carbon neutral. So you can stay warm and dry while trading lighter. This holiday season, get on their nice list when you shop the Allbirds Mizzle Collection. Discover your perfect pair at Allbirds.com. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com. Welcome back to the channel and another edition of the Spurs Chat Podcast, where this evening I'm joined by very special guest, Matt Letitiae, Premier League legend. 16 seasons at Southampton between 1986 and 2002, 540 appearances for Southampton, 209 goals, PFA Young Player of the Year in 1990, the first midfielder to score 100 goals in the Premier League, three-time Southampton Player of the Year, Winner of the BBC Goal of the Month Award in October 93, uh, August 94 and December 94. Most assists in the Premier League in the 94-95 season. The Premier League Player of the Month Award in December 94 and October 96. Named in the PFA Team of the Year in the 94-95 season. BBC Goal of the Season in the 94-95 season. And in 2020, voted Eurosport's Best Premier League Player of All Time. And of course, eight England caps. Matt Letizia, welcome to the channel. Glad you're here. Thanks very much, Chris. I didn't realise I'd won so much. <laughs> <laughs> Who said you didn't win any trophies? Exactly. <laughs> that is some career, though, Matt, isn't it? I, I had a lot of fun, mate. I had a lot of fun in, in 16 years. Um, you know, it, it was it, at times it was hard work, you know, the pre-seasons and stuff. But, you know, for the most part, it was a lot of fun. And, um, and I think... If at the end of your career you could look back uh, and say that, um, then I think you've done all right in life. 
You must be very proud, though. In, you know, um, in 2020, voted Eurosport's best Premier League player of all time. And there have been some real great players, hasn't there? Uh, there have, yeah. I mean, that must have cost my family a fortune for all those telephone votes, honestly. <laughs> I'm not quite sure. I'm not quite sure how that transpired, but uh, there's certainly been better players than me that have, that have played in the Premier League, that's for sure. Well, I want to say th thanks, first of all, Matt, for coming on a Spurs channel. Um, of course, you played for Southampton the whole of your career, but you did once join Spurs in 1990. <laughs> take, take us through what happened. Um, yeah, well, well, firstly, I was um, I was a Spurs fan as a kid. I think um, most people probably know that I never hid that fact during my career. That was my team. You know, Glenn Hoddle was my hero as he was many men of my age. Um, uh, absolutely idolised the, the way that he played football. So, yeah, when I got the chance to to uh, join Spurs, my agent rang me uh, and said, you know, Spurs want to buy you at the end of the season. This was in about February of 1990. And, um, and he said, um, and obviously that was my team. So I said, yeah, I'd, I'd be interested. So, um, so we did. We went up to London, had a meeting with Spurs representatives uh, at the time. Um, we talked terms on the contract. We agreed terms on the contract. And I actually, I actually signed the contract. Uh, now, the idea was that that contract would then be put away in a solicitor's office in, in North London and would only ever be bought out into the public domain uh, when the two clubs had agreed a fee at the end of the season. So that was what was agreed. Um, and just before the end of the season, I was used to be married at the end of that season. Just before the end of that season, um, my fiance decided she didn't want to go and live in London. So I had decisions to make. I either, I either got married or joined Spurs. That was my choice. Um, uh, obviously, I got married and, and stayed with Southampton my whole career. And uh, you know, to, to this to this day, I, I don't regret that decision. Um, you know, I've I, as I said, I had a wonderful time at, at Southampton, sixteen years. I felt like, you know, that that was. That was the route that was planned for me. That 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 was I was there for a reason at Southampton, uh, and that was to to try and keep them in the Premier League for all those years. So um, so yeah, it didn't transpire, and um, that fact was actually kept a secret for about seven years. I think it was maybe six or seven years. Nobody knew about it. I hadn't told anybody about it. Um, and then the chairman of Tottenham at the time was Irving Scholar. Uh, and Irving Scholar did a book in 1996. He did an autobiography type book, and uh, and he decided to tell that story <laughs> in his book. And uh, all of a sudden, it wasn't a secret anymore. Matt, was Spurs annoyed by that decision? Um, yeah. So I had a phone call from my agent when I when I rang my agent and said, oh, "I've changed my mind. I'm I'm not going to join. I don't want to go." Um, I had a phone call five minutes later from my agent, um, uh, and he said. Spurs are a bit disappointed uh, that you've changed your mind and their manager would like to speak to you. Now, obviously, the manager at the time was Terry Venables, um, but I'd made my mind up, so I didn't want to speak to Terry. I didn't want to you know, have another conversation where you know, I was just saying, no, I've changed my mind. Sorry, I'm not going. So I just said, no, I don't want to speak to him. Um, uh, and then, uh, obviously, just a, a few short years later, Terry became England manager, but he, he picked me in his first squad and gave me my England debut. Um, so, uh, so I, I kind of hoped that um, I hadn't upset him too much because he he'd obviously put me into the into the English squad. And a, a very similar thing actually happened with Chelsea in 1995 when they tried to buy me, and uh, their manager at the time wanted to speak to me after I said no, uh, and their manager was Glenn Hoddle. 
yeah. <laughs> uh, and again, I said, no, I'm staying at Southampton. I've made my mind up. So I didn't speak to Glenn either. And of course, he then became the next England manager not long after that. Um, uh, and so basically, I blanked the two England managers that were manager during the peak time of my career. <laughs> Why didn't Probably you not the best home? decisions. Because uh, I'd already made my mind up. I'd, I'd made my mind up that I was staying. So there was no point in me having a phone call. Um, yeah. And I didn't want to be in that position, especially with Glenn, um, <laughs> of, of talking to my hero uh, yeah. and, and, and end up arguing with him. Uh, I didn't want that to happen. So that's why I didn't take the call. Matt, what do you remember about growing up supporting Tottenham? Um, my best memory uh, of growing up supporting Tottenham was... Um, in 1981, uh, just before uh, the day before the cup final against Man City, um, I went to school Friday morning. Uh, and as I always did, I only lived like a, two minutes from school. So I always came home for my lunch. Uh, and my dad went to the cup final every year with a load of his mates. I don't know how he managed to get a cup final ticket every year, but somehow managed to blag a cup final ticket every year in about I don't know, six or seven of his mates used to go every single year. That was his thing. You know, that was his one weekend away where mum would let him go. <laughs> and uh, uh, and so this Friday lunchtime, I came back from school uh, ready to eat my lunch. Uh, and my dad was there and ready to go to the airport to fly to, to London to, to go to the game. And um, and he, he, he just said to me, um, you don't have to go back to school this afternoon. And I was like, oh, well, that's a result. Brilliant. And he went, yeah, he said, uh, you're coming with me to the cup final. And of course, it, it was it was Spurs Man City. Uh, and I was like gobsmacked because, you know, we didn't we didn't really do holidays and stuff when, when we were kids. We didn't really get taken away by our parents. So this was a massive, massive thing to happen to me as a uh, as a 12 year old lad. And yeah. um, and I was just so excited. And he, and he took me to London. We. Uh, Went out with it Friday night. I sat in the pub with my packet of crisps, my Coca Cola in the corner, and um, and then uh, obviously went to the game on on the Saturday. Just walking into Wembley, a full Wembley stadium, uh, was just amazing. It was just incredible. I mean, my face must have been an absolute picture. So, um, and to then obviously go one nil down in the game, and it was looking like we were going to lose. So I was a bit, ooh, ooh, ooh. and then Glenn Oddle takes the free kick, gets deflected in off Tommy Hutchinson's shoulder. Uh, and all of a sudden we go mental in the stand, and, and of course there's a replay. Now uh, the probably the disappointing bit is that is that I didn't get to go to the replay, uh, and that was obviously a way better football match than the than the first yeah. game itself. And Ricky Villa obviously saw him trudging off the pitch on Saturday, and to to have that transformation just a few days later to see what he what he did in the replay was was quite incredible. And I thought a brilliant piece um, uh, of managership uh, from Keith Burtonshaw, Burtonshaw with the uh, you know, because it would have been easy for him to have left him out of that, uh, of, of the replay, because of, you know, how it had gone for him on the Saturday. And he didn't. He put him back in the team and he, and he kept him, kept faith with him and he, and he got his rewards. And it was a brilliant game, 3-2. And, uh, yeah, I just, I remember watching that one at home uh, with my dad and going mental when, the, when we won the cup. Matt, do, do some of your family still support Spurs and do you still have a, a bit of a soft spot for Tottenham? Uh, yes, my dad still supports Spurs, um, although he, he, he did become uh, probably more of a Southampton supporter than he was a Spurs supporter during my career. Uh, yeah. I think he's kind of reverted back to the other way around now, so he kind of looks out for <laughs> Southampton's results, but he's still a Tottenham fan at heart. Um, uh, one of my uncles, a couple, um, my cousins uh, are Spurs supporters as well. Um, 
So, uh, and I, I kind of guess I did when I started playing professionally for Southampton, that becomes your team. And I, and I kind of stopped looking for, for Spurs results, if I'm honest. But um, I do always remember looking forward to going to play at White Hart Lane because that was obviously a bit, a bit special for me. Matt, during your career, you turned down moves to Tottenham, Chelsea and Liverpool. Do you mm. think there would have been any club, and, and, and please name the club, if they, if they would have come in, would you have left? Um, do you know what? I don't, I don't think there would have been. You know, people ask me about, you know, if Man United had come in, it's right, it's Ferguson had come in, would you have gone? Um, but I, I don't think I probably would have done. I just felt like that was where I belonged, um, you know, and I was there I was there for a reason. Southampton fans were brilliant to me ever since, you know, I made my debut. I was on the bench a lot for the first couple of years as a kid and they were always shouting my name, putting pressure on the manager to get me on the pitch. Um, so they were always brilliant to me and I always felt like, I always felt like I owed them something um, and I didn't want to be that person that that deserted the team. And then, you know, maybe the following year they'd have got relegated. And if that had happened, um, I don't think I'd have been able to live with myself on it because I would have I would have taken that personally that that was my fault because I've left. Matt, growing up as a Tottenham fan, you, you said there that Glenn Hoddle was your hero and he was a brilliant coach. Um, you were often compared to him as well. I was. And, you know, that was the, the best compliment anybody could have pr probably paid me, <laughs> to be honest, um, to have been spoken about in the same breath as him, um, given how I felt about him growing up as a kid was was, you know, one of the one of the best things that happened to me during my career, if I'm honest, um, you know, to have been put in that bracket um, made me feel. Yeah, made me feel very proud of what I'd done in my career, that people would actually um, speak about me in the same sentence as, as Glenn. Um, I'm not sure Glenn quite felt the same way about that, if I'm honest. And that's that might have been one of the reasons why we probably didn't get on that well as as people. Um, uh, and I think, um, you know, that was probably one of the disappointing parts of my career, actually. Um, I still have the utmost respect for, for Glenn. And he's still my hero as a footballer. Um, but we never really got on as, as people, um, which was a bit of a shame. I was going to come on to that because uh, your idol, you actually once told him to F off. <laughs> I did. I did. And that was, and I, do you know what? I think to the, uh, as far as I can remember, he was the only manager I had at Southampton who I did that to. You know, I was not a pain in the backside for managers. Uh, well, I, I say well, not, not personally in terms of going and knocking on the door when I've been dropped and all that kind of stuff. Uh, you know, I wasn't getting in trouble uh, off the pitch. I wasn't a pain in the backside to managers. I might have been a pain in terms of them when they dropped me. The fans used to give the managers a load of stick if they dropped me and uh, and weren't playing me. Uh, so I might have been a pain in the backside to them in that way. But that wasn't my fault, you know. Um, and so I just felt I felt like uh, you know I was I was probably close to thirty. I think I was maybe even thirty when Glenn came in. I just felt like he didn't really give me a fair crack of the whip in training. I felt like he was always on my case. Um, I hadn't really experienced that with managers before, uh, where I, I would get picked on for mistakes in training, where no other player was getting picked on for mistakes in training. Um, and, and yeah, I got a bit frustrated one day. And, uh, and yeah, I did. I snapped at him on the training ground. And uh, yeah, I, I think that was the only time I ever swore at one of my managers. Matt, I've got a couple of extracts from your book, uh, Taking the Tith. So if anyone wants to buy this, it's a fantastic read. Uh, it's available Thanks. on Amazon. Um, now, Glenn, Glenn Hoddle once ordered you to see a dietitian. And in your book, you, <laughs> I, I quote you here, I once got carried off in training after I fainted 
because I was eating <laughs> too many sausage and egg McMuffins before we started. I couldn't believe that I read that. <laughs> it's true. Um, yeah, so uh, we Glenn was the first manager that ever brought a dietitian in to talk to the lads about what they were eating and all that stuff. So, you know, it, it, was, quite, it was quite primitive back in the day. We used to get weighed on every Monday and every Friday. And um, as long as you were kind of, you know, within a pound or so of your weight, that they that they thought that was your playing weight, then then you were fine. It, it, you know, it didn't matter how that weight was made up. So there was no you know, fat percentage tests and all that stuff back then. It was just like that's your weight. Um, uh, and so uh, he, he bought in a dietitian, and um, I was I was asked by this dietitian to make a food diary and write down everything that I'd eaten for for two weeks. So so I did. I, I wrote down everything I ate and drank. Uh, for two weeks and I filled in this food diary and I, and I handed it to the lady at the end of it and um, she kind of went away and and read what I'd written and uh, she came back about an hour later and went can I have a word <laughs> and so, so I sat down and she looked at me and she went how are you a professional athlete <laughs> and I went well I've got a lot of ability I can get away with stuff <laughs> Uh, and so, um, so yeah, that that was kind of it, really. <laughs> uh, my my relationship with that dietitian didn't last too long. And yeah, I did. I, I once fainted uh, because I I'd eaten two sausage and egg McMuffins on the way to training, and then kind of got changed, ran out of the training pitch, started a warm up. This like started sweating profusely. It wasn't even a warm day. Do you know what I mean? And I was I was sweating, sweating buckets, and all of a sudden I just felt a bit funny. So I just sat down on the grass. And the physio saw me and he came over. He went, you're right. I went, not really. I said, I'm feeling all dizzy. So I just got this like sweat. So I just started sweating. And um, and he went, what what were you eating today? And I went, well, I had a couple of sausage and egg McMuffins um, in the car on the way here because I didn't have time for breakfast. I was dropping my lad off to uh, uh, to his school. And, uh, and he went, two sausage and egg McMuffins in the car just now. I went, yeah he went yeah that's that's what i'll do it <laughs> and he said you can't do that he said he said if you are gonna have a, this is the funny thing he didn't tell me not to have any sausage and egg mcmuffins right he went if you are gonna have sausage and egg mcmuffins you've got to have them a lot earlier than that <laughs> do you think Premier league footballers would get away with having sausage and egg mcmuffins now uh, I very much doubt that they would get away with uh, a lot of the stuff that I ate back in the day and still eat today. I had a shocking diet, honestly. My for a for a professional athlete, supposedly, um, my my diet was absolutely shocking. People don't believe me, but I I never really ate um, any fruit. I mean, I have the occasional strawberries now. I don't really eat fruit still to this day, and I didn't really eat vegetables till I was about twenty eight years of age. Um, and I just lived on crap, really. Um, no, not literal crap, but you know, <laughs> I used to uh, eat a lot of fast food, um, and and I used to. Have, I just grew up having chips with everything, every meal. So I I grew up, you know, probably having chips six days a week, and on a Sunday wow. we'd have a roast, and I, but Sunday we'd have a roast dinner, so I didn't have chips on a Sunday, but every other day of the week I'd have chips. So that was just that was just my life. So I just carried that on throughout my entire football career, and I and I had a, a lot of chips, uh, which is my one of my biggest weaknesses in life. Chips and coke um, <laughs> are two things that I eat and drink far too much of. 
Matt, there's another Spurs connection um, that you mentioned in your book. In 1983, you were playing um, for the, the Guernsey side in the under-15s cup final against Jersey. It was the warm-up game uh, for was. the Guernsey the Tottenham Hotspur game. And you missed a penalty, and it meant that um, the the main game, Tottenham v uh, Guernsey, uh, where it included the likes of Glenn Hoddle again, Archibald, Clements and Ardiles, it mean, meant that their game had put, put further on. Talk us through that game. <laughs> yeah, um, it, it was. And I, and I was kind of quite aware that the players had obviously turned up and they're watching, I think, at the end of the game. Um, and they were ready to go straight out on the pitch and play against um, the Guernsey team straight after we'd finished. Uh, and about, I think it was, must have been, I don't know, seven or eight minutes from the end of the game when we got the penalty, uh, which the score was one all, I think, at the time. So obviously this this was going to be the winning goal. <laughs> uh, and I stepped up and I completely fluffed my lines. And I drank, I actually missed the target. Uh, I don't remember the last time I, I actually missed the target when I took a penalty. In fact, that might have been the last time in 1983. Uh, and so the game had to go to extra time. Yeah, we did end up winning extra time. Uh, I didn't score, um, but we did end up winning. But the game had to be delayed yeah, for another half an hour. Matt, I want to talk about Tottenham um, today. Um, Antonio Conte, of course, came in in November, having taken over from Nuno Espirito Santo. Spurs got top four. We will be playing Champions League next season. What have you made of Conte's time at Spurs so far? Um, I think given... Um what had happened where they were when he took over uh i think fourth place was a pretty uh creditable finish for him i think he did a, a pretty decent job uh there were some you know some very decent performances along the way scored a lot of goals in quite a few games um so i think he can be pretty pleased with what he achieved in his first season um you know i think the fact that he obviously got a little bit tense towards the end and uh but obviously finishing just above arsenal was a massive uh, a massive thing for uh, for all the Spurs fans, and um, and I'm sure he was well aware of, of what that meant. Uh, so that would have been even sweeter that they took the fourth place and obviously Arsenal finished just a couple of points behind him. Matt, we as Spurs fans are not used to Tottenham doing uh, the transfer business so early. We've signed four players so I far. I know. Um, Incredible. Perisic, Forster, Basuma and Richarlison. What have you made of Tottenham's transfer business so far? Um, well, Perisic is obviously... Uh, player that, that Conte has had before uh, so he kind of knows him he trusts him I think he's um, he, he's quite a, a versatile player as well um, yeah. you know I think he'd even played him at wing back at some point at, at Inter so um, uh, I think he's obviously gone with a player who he knows he can trust he's a player who's won won trophies down the years uh, and he probably feels that that's important to to have in his changing room um, and he's a very good footballer uh, you know, no two ways about it. I know he's 33 and it probably may only be for a year or two. Um, but uh, he's on a free, so so why wouldn't you, uh, is, is my take on that one. Fraser, I think, um, Fraser's a, an interesting one. Uh, he had a really great start to his time at Southampton, uh, where he looked, you know, really challenging for, for number one spot for the England goalkeeper. Um, and then he lost his confidence and it was really strange to see a goalkeeper go from the heights of being you know right up there as amongst the best goalkeepers in england english goalkeepers uh to then go to the depths of honestly i was watching southampton and every time the opposition had a shot i, I, did, I didn't i didn't have no confidence that he was going to save it honestly his, his confidence went so low and he was just letting in goals left right and center that he shouldn't have been letting in um, and eventually, the club ended up shipping him out to Celtic, 
where he then went, rebuilt his confidence, comes back to Southampton, you know, sits behind McCarthy for a little while, but then when he gets his chance, um, he actually he actually looked a bit more like the goalkeeper that we had when he first came. Um, so if you get that goalkeeper, then I think he'll be a, a very good backup uh, to Larice. Um, you know, depending on on what that situation arises, he might even challenge Larice. You know, uh, he has got that ability to be really really good, but he also got the ability if he loses his confidence to be quite shocking. Would you expect him to get much game time, Matt? Uh, I, I mean, Lloris is getting on a bit now, isn't he? I mean, he's, he, he, it might be, I mean, Fraser's no spring chicken either, don't get me wrong. Um, but I think the one thing that might hold him back uh, from getting a lot of game time is he's not that good with his feet. You know, and if you want your goalkeeper to be, you know, part of your back five and your back, back four, whatever, and you want him to, to pass out from the back, He's always made me a little bit nervous um, when he when he tries to play out from the back. And I think that might just hinder him a little bit. So I think he'll probably play in the cups, that kind of stuff. Um, yeah. And he'll be a capable deputy if Lloris misses a few games through injury. But I still think Lloris is the number one. Matt, what are your thoughts on uh, the signings of Basuma and Richarlison? Um, I like the Basuma signing. Um, I, I think... This boy's got a hell of a lot of ability, and I think uh, he he will definitely improve the Spurs midfield, in my opinion, from what I from what I saw last season. I think he's got all the all the game to uh, make a real difference to to Spurs there. The Richarlison one is is a I the jury's out for me on on Richarlison in terms of him being at that level, um, the level that Spurs want to be at. Uh, I'm not convinced yet that he is at a good enough level for where Spurs want to be at. I think Everton was kind of the level that I thought, but that's not to say he goes to Spurs, plays perhaps with better players, and that elevates him again, and he and he kicks on again. That's happened plenty of times. Um, so that could possibly happen. But from what I've seen of his career so far, um, I, I wasn't sure that he would improve what Spurs had already got. Matt, who is a better striker, Alan Shearer or Harry Kane? Oh, that's a good question. <laughs> uh, wow. I mean, Alan, yeah, obviously I played with Alan uh, early on in his career. Um, and actually, when I played alongside Alan, um, he was nowhere near the player that he became. Um, you know, he had to leave Southampton really to kick on. And this is what I was saying about, you know, it might happen with Richarlison. So Alan at Southampton wasn't prolific in any way, shape or form. You know, me and Rodney Wallace were outscoring Alan every season, um, you know, and he went to Blackburn, became the main man. Uh, and then all of a sudden he kicked on um, and boy, did he kick on. So, you know, his goal record in the Premier League was just phenomenal. Uh, Harry Kane is the closest thing I think I've seen. To Alan, I think Harry might have a little bit more to his game in terms of um, his ability to set other people up for, for goals. You know, I think uh, I saw early on in his career um, that, that Harry had that ability to not just be your, your number nine, your centre forward is going to go score goals, but he could also drop off and see a pass really, really well. Um, uh, and so in that regard, I think he's probably got one extra string to his bow than Alan had, although I would say probably Alan mentally 
um, was probably a little bit stronger uh, than what than what Harry came as. I don't think I saw a, a, a more mentally stronger footballer than than Alan Shearer. He didn't care who he played against. Uh, he was he was up for everything. You know, if, if it was a fight you wanted, uh, he was happy to have a fight. Uh, if you gave him space, he'd crucify you. Um, so I think it would, it's very close between the two of them, in my opinion. Matt, us Spurs fans have gone 14 years now without a trophy. Of course, the last one was 2008 when we beat Chelsea in the League Cup. Um, do you think that Antonio Conte will deliver a trophy at Spurs soon and be successful at the club? Um, well, I don't think you could have a, a better manager in terms of uh, his experience and, and what he's won in the past. Uh, I mean, you know, if, you, if you've got a decent squad and you've got a manager who's used to winning trophies, knows how to win trophies, uh, then you'll never have a better chance. You know, I kind of thought that with Mourinho as well. I mean, it was close. But, um, uh, but I think Conte, especially given now that um, he seemed to, as you say, done the transfer um, stuff early uh, and got some got some good names in. Um, I'm sure they'll, you know, there, there may even be more to come in during this summer. Uh, we're still not done. We're far from done with the transfer window. So, um, yeah. so yeah, I think that he's got as as good a chance as, as anybody to to win Spurs a trophy. Do you have any favourite or funny um, stories or memories of uh, playing against Tottenham during your career? Um, do you know Spurs are actually. They're actually one of the teams I scored the most goals against in my career, which is quite ironic. Uh, you didn't need to mention it... that. <laughs> so I think uh, I think it was Spurs, Aston Villa, and Nottingham Forest. I, I, I got into double figures against all three of those teams, um, and uh, I think, but, but actually, probably a memory that sticks out, which wasn't a very good one, uh, was that I actually played in the game at, at White Hart Lane, where I think we conceded. Four goals in five minutes. Yeah, four two. Um, yeah, was, I mean, yeah. that takes some doing. Four goals in five minutes. I mean, that was just oh, we didn't know what it hit us. Uh, we really didn't. I think Darren Anderson was pulling the strings that day, um, yeah. uh, and give uh, give Franny right. So, yeah, four four goals in five minutes was not a pleasant memory to take away from White Hart Lane. Um, but I, I I do remember winning an FA Cup third round tie there. Three um, one, which was probably one of the highlights of uh, of my career at, at White Hart Lane. We we won three one. I scored one of the goals, uh, and I think it was that uh, was like Terry Venable's fiftieth birthday. Well, that was actually that was the season. That was the January before uh, they tried to buy me. Um, January nineteen ninety, I think. So yeah, um, but those were those were. Uh, oh, there was a, there was a, a oh, that was the other one. I've got another one. <laughs> but you'll you'll remember this very well. All Spurs fans will remember this very well because we went 2-0 up in an FA Cup replay uh against you down at the Dell. Uh I scored a penalty mention, in the I'm first gonna, half. I'm gonna mention that. I'm gonna mention that later on. Oh, okay. Ronnie, I won't I won't Ronnie, mention that one then. Ronnie Rosenthal, <laughs> yeah. I, I was gonna come on that um to talk about um the 94-95 season because you mentioned this in yeah. your book again. Um, you know, all the talk was about Spurs were gonna batter Southampton. Of course. We had Jurgen Klingsman, Teddy Sheringham, Ili Dumitrescu, Nick Barmby, Darren Anderson. It was like the famous five up front under Ozzy Ardiles. Um, of course, you grabbed two goals that night. I was at the game as a young kid, and I never, ever forget Stuart Nevercott not clearing that ball. <laughs> Unbelievable moment. And you even say in your book, um, Stuart Nevercott um, should have got it away, but that was the worst attempted clearance I have ever seen. And of course, Southampton won that game 2-1. 
We did. Uh, we were 1-0 down as well in the game, as I remember. And uh, yeah. we, we got back into the game because of a, uh, I think we got a penalty. Uh, and in conceding the penalty, I think Sol Campbell got sent off uh, yeah. for a foul on Neil Heaney. Neil Heaney had gone clean through. I think I put him clean through. Uh, and he fouled him right on the edge of the box. And we thought the ref was going to give a, a free kick on the edge of the box, but he didn't. He, he gave it as a, as a penalty. So we get back to one all, and then Jeff Kenner whips this crossing. And it, if, if I remember rightly, it was just like the pitch. Was, I don't know if it had rained that night or if there was just a, like a, a bit of a dew was settling on the pitch. Uh, and as he whipped the crossing and it goes to bounce, I'm I'm watching the ball and I can see that Stuart Nethercott hasn't put himself in a very good position in, in terms of the way his body is, is shaped to try and clear this ball. And he's gone really to try and clear it with his wrong foot. Uh, and so when I saw it coming in and I saw the way that Stuart had positioned himself, I thought to myself, geez, there's a chance he could miss this. So I'm ready. I'm re- if that ball comes past him, I'm ready. And if you see if you see the goal, you actually see that I'm I'm in position and I let it hit my thigh and the ball just drops down straight in front of me and I and I tuck it past Ian Walker, I think was in goal that day. Um but that season actually, that was a what was really interesting about that season. Um, because I, I was quite good at penalties. Uh, I don't know if you remember, but I was okay at penalties. And that season, I got three penalties against Spurs. Yep. And Ian Walker didn't save any of them, but he got his hand to every one of them. And yep. just because there was enough pace on the ball, uh, that it managed to still go in. But I remember thinking, Jesus, he's he's not bad at this. <laughs> to get three hands on three penalties in the same season was a good effort. Unfortunately for him, none of them kept stayed out of the goal. Matt, that night um, when Southampton beat us 2-1, um, Klingsman was in the team that evening. Um, yeah. He remains one of my all-time favourite Spurs players. What did you make of Jurgen Klingsman at Tottenham? Uh, I thought he was excellent. Um, I thought he really was. Uh, he came and he embraced uh, the English way of life. Uh, I thought he was brilliant the way that he, he you know, because he had a reputation for diving. When he did his celebration, he took the mickey out of himself. And I think that endeared him to a lot of people, uh, yeah. myself included. And I just thought... Uh, he was uh, a fantastic performer uh, for Spurs. I thought he did a brilliant job there. I, I guess the only disappointing part was that he didn't he didn't stick around a bit longer. Yeah. Let's talk about that famous night of the deal, as you mentioned. 2-0 up, Southampton 2-0 up. Ronnie yeah. Rosenthal come on as a sub. Rocket Ronnie got happy. <laughs> talk us through that night. Unbelievable night for Tottenham. It was an unbelievable night. So we, yeah, like we said, the first half, we absolutely dominated. Uh, and we were all over you. <laughs> And uh, Neil Shipley, I think, got the first one. Uh, then we got the penalty. And it was like 2 nil at half time. We were like going in at half time, sat down, thinking, whoa, blimey, we just battered them there. That's superb. And then all of a sudden, they kind of turned up a little bit and, and uh, up their game, uh, got back to 2 all, um, forced extra time. And the rest, as they say, is history. Ronnie came on and decided to shoot from everywhere. And uh, Bruce Grobelard decided that he was not really going to. Um, actually tried too hard to save them. So <laughs> we ended up losing 6-2, I think it was. Some of those uh, goals that Ronnie scored, though, Matt, were incredible. And yeah. when you look at, at some of the chances that he has missed over the years, <laughs> to score three goals like that, unbelievable. Uh, it was the one with his left foot from about 25 yards, which flew in the top corner, was was absolutely stunning. I, I mean, it was that good. I think Bruce just stood there and kind of just went, oh, Oh dear. Yeah. Um, and it was, yeah, it was a, it was a pretty special hat trick, and um, yeah, a bit of disappointing night for us that night. I've been, I've been led two 0 It's always a, a bit of a blow to not go on and win a football match. What current players do you enjoy watching now? Uh, Spurs players or Premier League? Any. 
Uh, well, I, I love watching uh, Kane and Son, um, first and foremost. Uh, I, I think those two have uh, formed a great partnership. You know, I, I was watching the game on Soccer Saturday a couple of years ago when, when Son scored his goal of the season. Uh, and I just remember going mental in the studio and, and calling it as goal of the season, like two yeah. seconds after it had got in the net. <laughs> and uh, uh, it was a fantastic goal. So I love watching Son play. I think his energy is brilliant. I love the all-round game of, of Harry Kane. But I think my favourite player in the Premier League to watch is probably Kevin Kevin De Bruyne. Uh, I think he's just been, over the last few years, he's just been phenomenal in that City midfield. And uh, he's a, a wonderful footballer to go and watch. Matt, you never seem to score a bad goal. And uh, it's funny <laughs> because whenever I think of the name Matt Letizier, I think of that goal against Blackburn and especially those two magical goals at the Dell against Newcastle. I was watching that as a young kid on Sky Sports. And it's funny because the manager, Ian Bramford, he didn't celebrate. <laughs> and one thing I want to talk about um, as well is every time you scored a fantastic goal, you hardly ever celebrated. Why? Uh, and that's probably because we were, we were losing in most of those games. <laughs> that was like a goal to make it 3-1, so you didn't really celebrate. You just get the ball and get it back to the halfway line. Um, well, the Newcastle one, actually, the, the, the second goal against Newcastle, um, the reason I didn't celebrate there is because it was in the 87th minute, I think, and I was absolutely knackered. I'd, I'd actually been dropped from the team like for the four or five games previous to that. So I'd been playing reserve team football uh and as you said Bramford wasn't wasn't my biggest fan uh, and he didn't really celebrate those goals either um because I don't think he really wanted me in the team and and I think he would quite been a, he would have been quite happy to have lost that game and for me to have a stinker uh so he could justify leaving me out again did you like to train I love to train if there was a football around uh, yeah. I just didn't I didn't like to train uh when they just um, ran you it like the first couple of weeks of pre-season where we never saw a football it was just running running uh you know circuits and uh, i hated it honestly that that stuff really annoyed me um and managers would have got a lot more out of me they could have made me do much more running if they would have just given me a football and told yeah. me to run with the ball um and they would have got more out of me than what they did by taking all the balls away and just going right now we're going to run and Keep running and keep running until you're nearly physically sick, which did happen on several occasions. Matt, on Saturday, um, the Tottenham Hotspur team and Antonio Conte fly out to South Korea for pre-season. Where was the most interesting and best place you visited um, as a footballer? Oh, um, so we did. We didn't really do many exotic pre-season trips. Um, you know, we tended to go to like Norway and Sweden and all that stuff. Um, but we did a couple of end-of-season trips. Uh, one to Singapore when I was like 18 years of age, 19 maybe. Um, and so that was, you know, for me as a kid who I'd only ever been, you know, I grew up in Guernsey. I'd only ever been to France once, I think, and then England. So for me as a kid to then go to Singapore, like 12 hours on a plane, I was just like, oh, what's happening here? And then to to experience that heat uh, which I'd never really experienced before. I got sunburned like you wouldn't believe because like, I grew up in Guernsey, on the beaches of Guernsey, barely ever put sun cream on, never got burnt as a kid, just go brown. Uh, and then all of a sudden I'm in Singapore and it's slightly different heat than I've ever been used to. And I remember just my whole chest going like pink, like lobster pink. It was horrible. So I couldn't chest a ball for about <laughs> for about a week. Um, so that was that was pretty exotic. We played a couple of games out there. And then we actually went to the Cayman Islands at the end of the season 
uh, one year and played a couple of matches at the end of the season in the Cayman Islands. So that was a pretty good experience. Matt, it's uh, just over 20 years since you retired from football. Um, how do you think football has changed in that time? Um, well, I think, firstly, it's changed uh, financially quite a lot, um, obviously. Uh, secondly, the other big change has been the standard of the pitches that they actually yeah. play on now. That's been a big, you know, you're seeing pitches in the middle of winter. There's not a, there's not a blade of grass missing. Um, you know, there's, there's no mud patches like we used to play on. Uh, so the, the technology for the groundsmen and the pitches uh, is amazing. Um, so they get to play on carpets now. And by the way, football will be a lot easier on a carpet than he would on the shit that we played with. Uh, on <laughs> what we used to have to play on. Uh, so um, and people go, oh, yeah, well, you, you'd never survive in today's game. Today's game? I'd love to have played on a carpet every week. You'd never miscontrol a ball your whole career. Uh, so, um, so those are the two changes. I think the other change, <coughs> the other change has been um, a lot of managers now um, are more open to um, being a lot braver with how they play and playing out mm -hmm. from the back. You know, there were very few teams that used to play out from the back in our day um, because it was always deemed a little bit too dangerous. Uh, you know, to mess about, get caught on your own box in possession, like that was the cardinal sin in our day. Nowadays, it's like if you're a centre-back and you can't dribble around three players and clip a 40-yard pass to somebody, you ain't getting in the team. Um, so it's quite a dangerous game. <coughs> but it is uh, an incredibly entertaining game to watch because the oppositions always have a chance against teams that play out from the back because they will take risks uh, and they do give away goals. But when they beat the press, they also put themselves in a really good position to go and score goals at the other end. The players are analysed a lot now. Do you think that's a good thing? Um, the players are analysed. Uh, yeah, I guess um, what has made it easier to, to analyse is the technology, obviously, with uh, with their heart rate monitors and all that kind of stuff that track their uh, their every movement. Um, that makes it a, a lot easier to, to analyse what a player's done in the game. Um, but I'm not so sure that uh, that gives you the, the, the full story. Um, you know, I think uh, in, in my day, I would probably have not been at the top of the running stats at the end of each game. Um, uh, but at the end of the day, what's important in football um, is scoring goals and creating chances. You know, that that's how you win football matches. Uh, you don't win football matches just by running around a lot. Um, you actually have to have some kind of quality uh, about you. So I would probably have come uh, bottom of the table in the running distances, um, but I would have been probably top of the table each season on the assists and the, uh, and the goals front. Matt, who is the best and your most favourite player you played alongside and the most difficult opponent? Um, so the best I played alongside, actually, was a guy who was only at Southampton for one season. And he played about 20-odd games. Uh, and he was a Danish midfielder called Ronnie Eklund. Um, we had him on loan from Barcelona. Uh, and I absolutely loved playing alongside him. We were just on the same wavelength on a football pitch right from the first training session we did with each other, <laughs> which was fantastic. Um, because that was that was very rare that that happened. Um, so he became my my favourite player that I played alongside. Um, others were Rodney Wallace was um, was a very good footballer. Um, uh, obviously Alan Shearer was there. Uh, Jimmy Case was another one for the for the older people. Jimmy was kind of the senior pro in the team when I made my debut, and he he was like our minder in the team, so he would look after us. 
you know, if any of the opposition used to try and kick the shit out of us, he would be there to, <laughs> he would be there to just, you know, put a foot in when need be. Um, in terms of playing against, there were two players that kind of stood out for me. Um, one of them probably won't go down too well on here because it was Thierry Henry, um, but he was a, he was an incredible footballer. Uh, and the other one um, was Roberto Baggio. I played in a in a preseason friendly against Juventus in early nineties, uh, and his second half performance in that game was just out of this world. And uh, uh, we actually went one nil up against him stupidly because I think we made him a bit angry, and uh, he ended up just controlling the rest of the game. I think he scored two and set the other set the other goal up, and they beat us three one. And he was just awesome. Uh, so I loved watching Roberto Baggio play. I thought you were going to mention George Weir's cousin. <laughs> you didn't ask me the worst player. <laughs> I did. I did. <laughs> oh, you see, I know you said the best player I played with and best player I played against. No, the, 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 mo the most difficult player you played against. Oh, oh, the most difficult. Oh, sorry. The most difficult player I played against. Um, oh, so I really struggled against Des Walker. Yeah, um, he, had, he had a bit too much pace for me uh, and he read the game very well. So I, I tended to struggle a little bit against him. Uh, Tony Adams and, and Martin Keown were also difficult to play against. Um, Sol Campbell was another one who was, who was difficult against. Um, so it was, there, there, was, there was quite a few. Uh, I think very early on in my career uh, as a young kid, when I played on the right wing at the start of my career, um, I came up against Stuart Pearce and he scared the hell out of me. So, so yeah, for a few years before I bulked out a little bit and, and could look after myself a bit more, Stuart Pearce, yeah, scared the living daylights out of me. Matt, tell us a little bit about George Weir's cousin. I, I joked there, but um, I, I've heard you <laughs> tell the story before and I'd love you to say it on here. Um, George Weir's cousin, what what happened? <laughs> OK, so what, what happened was um, apparently George Weir had uh, phoned the Southampton training ground uh, trying to get hold of Graham Sooners, who was our manager at the time. And uh, um, Graham was out training us on the pitch. And they, so he'd left a message with his secretary if, if you know, because could Graham ring George Weir back? So after training, George gets the message. He goes, uh, Graham gets the message. Oh, George Weir's phoned you. So, oh, geez, George Weir, better ring him back. So Graham rings him and George decides to tell him about his cousin who is in Southampton uh, and is a pretty decent footballer. And he thinks he should have a look at him. Um, and so Graham was like, all right, okay, George Ware's recommending him. He must be pretty good. So anyway, this kid comes in to train with us. Um, and so at this point, we didn't know about this telephone call or anything like that. It was only later that we realized it probably wasn't George Ware on the phone. Um, and so this kid comes in training with us, trains for a few days before we play Leeds at home. And he's training and I'm looking and I'm thinking, what's he doing here? Like he was... It wasn't very good. And I, I thought he'd actually won a competition to come and train with us. Because like that happened back in the day. Like we had stuff like that. People used to come into training and then Yeah, yeah. And then and then we'd get people on trial from like non-league clubs and all sorts of stuff. It was like people coming in there all the time. You wouldn't believe what used to go on back in wow. the day. Yeah. I mean it I digress here very very quickly. So um on that note, I think it was just before this had happened, we had two Norwegian lads. Um, that came in, two Norwegian centre-forwards that came on trial with us. And um, and we had a chance to, uh, I think they were like, for the pair of them, it was something like two million quid. Uh, but Southampton didn't have two million quid. We could only afford one of them, right? So uh, so we bought one of them. 
and the one we bought was Egil Ostenstad. So I don't know if you remember Egil, you know, yeah. did, did all right for us, went to Blackburn. Um, yeah. so, the, so the lad that we couldn't afford, uh, we didn't sign him and he went on to play for a different Premier League club. Uh, and the one we couldn't afford who did come on trial with us was Torre Andre Flo. Uh, and so we had that kind of stuff happen all the time. Lads would just come in and train with us for a bit. So he's training with us, um, George Ware's cousin. And uh, and I'm looking at him, I think, he, what's he been here? So anyway, he trains for about two or three days. And then I'm thinking he, he's won a competition. On the Saturday, we're playing Leeds at home and we're in the change room at half one, um, three o'clock kickoff. And sat down in the change room and he sat in the change room. And I was like, Jesus, that's a good competition he's won. He's going to get the team talk and everything, right? And then Graham Sooners comes in and he names the team. And then he goes, and the subs are, and I think it was three subs in those days, and he's one of the subs, right? We're all looking at each other going, what's going on here? So anyway, after about half an hour, he gets to come on. He runs around like a headless chicken for a bit, misses an absolute sitter uh, in front of the Archers road end, almost an open goal, miss kicks right in front of goal. Uh, and eventually in the second half, Graham Sooners realizes he, he actually is not very good and uh, he substitutes him again um and that when he got substituted when he left after the game we never saw him again he never he never turned up again at the football club so he literally on the sunday just checked out of his hotel and just disappeared from from absolute nowhere and the worst bit obviously he came on as a sub after about half an hour and the worst bit about that story is that the bloke that he came on as a sub for was me so that was a bit embarrassing, if I'm honest. <laughs> so that, that's how easy it is to get a Premier League appearance. That's how easy it was to get a Premier League appearance. <laughs> you ain't getting away with that in this day and age, let me tell you. <laughs> Matt, you scored, you scored the last ever goal at the Dell. And this will, mm. this one will go down well on this channel. It was a 3-2 <laughs> win against Arsenal in the 89th minute. You must be very proud of that. Oh, that was that was amazing. Um, you know, that, uh, the, I think a lot of people... Um, knew that I'd, I'd scored the last ever goal at the Dell. What they didn't realise, I think a lot of people didn't realise, is that was my first Premier League goal that season, on the last day of the season. So I'd spent most of the season injured, um, kind of been in and out of the team a little bit. I'd, I'd scored one goal in the couple. Uh, we, we got to play Arsenal last ever league game. And Stuart Gray, who was the manager of Southampton at the time, um, was was really good to me. You know, I had been injured a bit. I kind of got back a little bit, was sub a couple of times. And on the Tuesday before the game at the weekend, he said to me, look, he said, you're going to be sub at the weekend. He said, I promise you now, you and Franny Benali will both be on the pitch at the end of the game because of what you've done and the service that you've given to your football club. The last ever league game, you deserve to be on the pitch when that final whistle goes. And so from that Tuesday onwards, I was just obsessed with scoring the last ever goal. I just wanted it to be me. I felt like it was my destiny that it had to be me that scored that goal. So like every night I went to I went to bed for the rest of that week, all that's going through my mind is, right, how am I going to score the last goal? What's going to happen? What what chance am I going to get? And I, and I knew that it didn't matter how difficult the chance was that fell my way. As long as I had a chance, yeah. I knew it was going to go in. It didn't matter how difficult it was. And the, and the one that did... Uh, going was was a pretty difficult chance. You know, it was a little bit behind me on my left foot. It was a half volley. I had to swivel and hit it on the half volley. It's it's fired into the top corner, and uh, Alex Manninger got nowhere near it. As soon as it left my foot, I knew it was going in, and that was for three two. And uh, it was quite funny because just after that, I mean, this is like the 88th minute. I think it was 89th minute. 
just after that, we have another attack, and Chris Marsden has his shot from the edge of the box, and Manninger makes a brilliant save, tips it over the crossbar, right? And I can remember, right, so I was on the right-hand side, and the corner was given over on the left-hand side. Now, I'm, I'm going to take the corner, so I remember jogging across the box, and I really wanted just to go shake Manninger's hand and go, cheers, mate, well done. Because <laughs> I didn't want Chris Marsden to be the last person to score a goal. So anyway, knowing that it's nearly full time, I walk across really slowly to take this corner. And then I get to the corner, I put the ball down, and I suddenly thought, shit, I don't want to put this in the box. Somebody might edit in, right? <laughs> then I wouldn't be the last person that scored. So anyway, I stood there for a couple of seconds and I was like, oh, I don't want to don't want to put this in the box. So anyway, Wayne Bridge is playing left back for us that day. He's up on the halfway line, back defending. So I just looked up, I looked looked down at Bridgie like that, and he looked at me, and I've and I've gone like, like that, and he's come running down from the halfway line to take a to take a short corner. So I just rolled a short corner to him, and as I roll the ball to him, the referee blows the final whistle. <laughs> so I was like, "Get in!" <laughs> yeah. No, a very proud moment. Matt, was there was there any players during your playing career, either um, in your team or opponents, that you didn't get on with? Um. <laughs> not really uh i was i was a pretty easy going bloke uh to be honest there, there was probably one that we didn't get on with uh that i didn't get on with straight away um uh, it took a little bit of time to get used to him uh and that was carlton palmer um so carlton came in very big character uh and um i just i just remember you know in in our first one of our first training sessions i was on his team in a five-a-side match and um and i gave the ball away uh and then i didn't like try and win it back i just <laughs> strolled around and they they went and attack so carton's running back goes and defends clears the ball up uh, and once he's done that he then stands up and he starts having a go at me in training in this five-a-side match for not chasing back and trying to get the ball back and uh, it's like the very first training session and uh and i wasn't too pleased with that <laughs> I just looked at him, given it was a training, it was like five or side games. You know what I mean? No one takes him seriously, apart from Carlton Palmer, apparently. And uh, so I just looked at him, I went, Carlton, I said, your job in this team is to go and fetch the ball and to give it to the players that can play. So as long as you do that, we're going to be fine. <laughs> and, uh, and I don't think he liked it very much. And we, we kind of didn't really get on for a, for a cup. But to be fair to him, first six nine months he was at Southampton he was unbelievable right he, yeah. he was playing brilliant stuff uh and eventually um we actually we we did bond eventually and we ended up uh uh going out and, and having a few drinks on a, on a few occasions and uh and then it was fine until I used to do a joke in my after dinner speech and uh and it wasn't very complimentary towards Carlton but it was a joke do you know what I mean it was it was only said as a bit tongue-in-cheek but one of his mates was at one of these after dinner speeches that I did and told him what I'd said about him. Right. But he didn't tell him that I was only messing about and Carlton got the ump with that. And uh, he wasn't very pleased with me. Uh, so he decided in his book that he was going to completely slag me off and then went on soccer AM and slagged me off on there as well. Uh, and, um, but we, we have actually spoken. And old now, so, uh, it's been a rocky relationship um but i think yeah carlton was probably the only one that didn't really get on with i mean I, i'm pretty easy going i get on with everyone matt regarding opposition fans what's the what's the worst song or the worst thing that an, an opponent's fans have, have sung or said to you um 
I don't know, really. I, I didn't really get offended by songs. I thought they were quite funny normally. The football fans are quite quite funny. Um, and so, what were, the, if they, what were the funny ones? Uh, so obviously, I had a, I had one um, which the West Ham fans used to sing quite a lot of me was, was big nose. He's got a fucking big nose. It was, you know, and uh, and I remember one of my greatest memories of that song is actually on the last day of the season in 93, 94, we played West Ham at Upton Park and we had to get something out of the game to stay up. Like we were struggling and yeah. uh, we, we were 1-0 down and we got a free kick just before half time. And uh, I didn't, I didn't realise at the time because when you were, when you were in the game, you know, you're engrossed in the game. You don't really, you know, in the middle of the game, you don't really hear everything. Sometimes when the ball's out of play and stuff, you hear songs and shouts from the crowd. But I was engrossed in the game. And it was only when I watched when I watched it back on Match of the Day that I could hear it uh, on it come through the screen. So when I'm stood over the free kick, uh, all the West Ham fans behind that goal were singing "Big Nose, He's Gonna Get Big Nose." So they were singing this and singing this, and then I stepped up, took the free kick, and I smashed it in the top corner. And and honestly, as soon as the ball hit the net, the song just stops, and you could hear it on the telly. <laughs> I was like, brilliant! What timing that is. <laughs> Um, but yeah, I mean that kind of stuff did. I, I always found that quite quite funny. I didn't. It didn't bother me at all. I used to play along with it. Matt, let's talk about penalties because um, your penalty record is just exceptional. Forty-eight penalties taken, forty-seven scored. You didn't yep. miss one. One was saved. Mark Crossley. What went yes. wrong with that penalty? And what is it with you and penalties? Is it just lots of practice? What what advice would you give to take the per- perfect penalty? Um, I. I did practice. I, I wouldn't say I practiced loads, um, but I did practice. Uh, what advice would I give? What went, what went wrong with that penalty? So what, what went wrong was that um, Mark fainted to go one way um, and I saw that faint and I changed my mind. So I was going to the goalkeeper's left, which is where I, I would normally go. That's my first port of call would always be to go to the goalkeeper's left. But if he moves towards that corner, I keep my eye on him as long as I can. And if he moves early, I just whip my foot around the ball and go in the other corner. Uh, and so Mark fainted to go into that corner just at the right time. Uh, and so I changed my mind, but he only went a little bit and then he flew him, flung himself the other way and he saved it. Uh, and the worst bit about that is that um, the ball actually rebounded straight back to me. And I think I was in so much shock from missing the penalty in the first place because that was like the 20, I think it was like the 21st or 22nd penalty I'd taken. And uh, I, was in, I was in such shock that when the ball came back to me from about seven yards out, I put it over the crossbar with my left foot from the rebound. And that was more <laughs> embarrassing than missing the penalty. Matt, you always had a free role at Southampton and was good. Not considered... always, not always. It seemed like it. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, you, you were always considered as a star man at Southampton. Did that ever give any of your teammates the ump? Because, you know, some managers actually come out and said, you know, get the ball, give it to Matt Letizia to make something happen. Did that ever uh, give anyone the ump? Um, oh, that's a good question. Um, not that any of them told me it gave them the ump. <laughs> it might have done in private. Um, but uh, at the end of the day, it's a team game. And... If I'm playing well and I'm scoring goals, what that transforms into is win bonuses in your wage packet at the end of the month. And mm. let's be honest, in our day, win bonuses actually made a difference to you in terms of how big they were in comparison to what you were earning. You know, yeah. so they made they made quite a big difference. So 
so in that period where Alan Ball was the manager that you you kind of referred to there, where he's, we just encouraged everybody to give the ball to me as soon as they got it, can can they pass to me? Um, during that period of time, I I was you know playing the best football of my life. I'd scored forty six goals in uh, sixty four games under Bawley, and um, uh, 40, no, 45 goals in 64 games and during that time we won quite a lot of matches so everybody was earning decent money out of it so nobody would have been complaining then uh, it would have probably been you know perhaps the season after that um, and I didn't always under ball I kind of had a yeah, uh, but under other managers kind of more restricted to where I should have been playing that's not to say that I always stayed in that position where I should have been playing uh, because sometimes in a game you kind of feel what you need to do to try and make something happen uh, and you end up drifting out in position sometimes and, and that's what I used to do. Matt do you have a favourite away ground or, or was there any away grounds that you just didn't like going to? Um, I didn't like going to Leeds for some reason um, uh, that wasn't a particularly pleasant place to go and play uh, and it's also um, two of my brothers are big Leeds supporters um, and they remind me this to this day, even though it's 20 years since I retired. But Leeds were pretty much the only team that I played against that I didn't score against in my career. Uh, and so that's probably one of the reasons why I didn't like, uh, I didn't enjoy Leeds. It was quite a, quite a hostile atmosphere um, back in the day. Uh, and I never really, seemed to, never really seemed to do very well at Leeds. So yeah, that would probably be one that I didn't enjoy. I mean, places we went to where, you know, I, I'm not sure I even won a game at, Anfield in my whole career, um, thinking about it. Uh, but it was amazing to go and play Anfield. You know, the, the pitch was always immaculate uh, and the, the atmosphere, the Liverpool fans were brilliant. Um, so I, I always in, enjoyed it there, even though we got very little out of it. However, Leeds was probably the one I, I enjoyed the least. Have you been to the Tottenham Hotspur Stadium yet? Uh, only um, only walked to it on Jeff Stelling's prostate cancer walk uh, last year. Uh, so we, we we walked, we finished the the twenty six mile walk around London. We finished at the, at the Tottenham Hotspur Stadium. So I haven't seen a football match uh, there yet, and uh, that's something that I really want to do because uh, everybody I spoke to that have been to one of those games has said how amazing it is. So yeah, I look forward to coming up and and seeing the game this season, hopefully. Well, of course, it's the uh, it's the opening game of the uh, of the Premier League season for Spurs. Um, we'll talk about that in uh, in a second. Um, Matt, what's your favourite and uh, or your best and worst moment in football? Um, well, my best moment would be um, the the day I made my England debut uh, because that was what uh, my dream as a kid was. Um, was uh, you know all I wanted to do was be a footballer and all I wanted to do was play for England. So. Um, the day that Terry Venables gave me my my first England cap, came on as a sub against Denmark. Uh, that was the most special uh, day of my career. Um, that meant a, a hell of a lot to me, uh, to my parents, my family. Um, so that was pretty amazing. Um, and the lowest point is is pretty uh, pretty easy, really. Um, it was the day that uh, I realised I couldn't do what I used to be able to do, and I had to retire. Um, so that was in uh, about February of 2002 at St Mary's. I, I had a lot of injuries during that season. My contract was up at the end of the season and uh, I played in a reserve game. Um, and after about 25 minutes of this reserve game, my calf went again. Um, and at that point, uh, that was the, the moment that I knew that this was going to be my last season. And I, and I was going to be hanging up my boots at the end of it. I was 33. 
Um, and uh, I'm not too ashamed to admit um, that when I walked off that pitch, I went straight down the tunnel. Uh, I went into the physio's room on my own uh, and I bawled my eyes out. Um, and, you know, it was just a horrible realisation that, you know, that was it. That was my career, my football career done. I'll, I'll never walk out in front of a, a full stadium again. I'll never score a screamer from 25 yards and see the crowd go mental. Um, and yeah, so that was a that was a sad day for me. But Gordon Strachan was actually really good that day. He was manager of Southampton at the time and he came down. He actually saw what happened. He was there at the game and he came down to see me in the change room afterwards. Uh, and he walked into the, the physio's room and saw me boil my eyes out. And um, uh, he just looked at me and he went, look. And I, I said to him, as soon as he came in, I went, I went gaffer. I said, I can't do it anymore. Uh, I said, so this is this is going to be my last season. Um, and he went, no, he said, I completely understand. He said, let me just tell you. He said, you've been lucky enough that everything that you've done is on camera. So, you know, you'll be able to show generations to come what you did as a professional footballer. And you should be rightly proud of the career that you had. So, you know, it was lovely of him to come down and say those words to me. Uh, and that meant a lot at the time, to be honest. So, uh, so yeah, that was the moment. It must be extremely difficult, though, Matt, the, the, the fact that you've been a professional for all those years. You know, the very next season when you weren't playing professional football, when you got up, what did you, what, what, what did you do? Played golf. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think I literally did. I, I went mad. I went mad for golf. I just... Uh, and, 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 <laughs> so what, what I didn't really take into account is that uh, all that, all those years of playing professional football and expanding all that energy training five days a week, whatever it was, um, I'd kind of gotten away with uh, being able to eat what I wanted because uh, I would, you know, burn it off most of the time. Uh, towards the end, probably not quite so much. But when I retired, um, I didn't really uh, think about the fact that I wasn't exercising that much anymore, so I should probably have eaten a bit less. <laughs> Uh, but I didn't, and uh, uh, and within two months of retiring, uh, I put on two stone. Uh, I'm not ashamed to admit that. And um, and so yeah, I ate a lot. I played a lot of golf, and um, I did a little bit of work, bit of media work, um, uh, and that was kind of it really. And to be honest, it, I loved it because um, my body was my body was ready for a rest. Uh, if I'm honest, after yeah. after 17 years. Uh, you know, I'd had a, quite a lot of injuries the last two or three years of my career. It was frustrating. Uh, and so it was actually nice just to be able to go and just take a big deep breath and go, right, you're done now. Your body can, you know, take a rest for a while. Um, but that didn't last too long. Cause I actually came back and uh, I played for Eastleigh um, for a little bit. They weren't in that dizzy heights of the conference at the time. They were playing in the Juice and Wessex League, which is about four divisions lower than the conference. So I went and played for them for a, a few games when I retired as well. So that, that was fun. Matt, um, if you can, talk to me about the uh, the spread betting, because I cannot believe that footballers were allowed to bet on games back in the day. And even in your book, you said um, that you can you even betted on yourself scoring the first goal. Yeah, I used to I used to go into the uh, into the bookmakers at the end of the road from the Dell um, and, and actually put 20 quid on myself to score the first goal in the game. And nobody batted an eyelid. You know, I mean, I'm sure they would have batted an eyelid if I was uh, if if I was betting on the opposition to score the first goal. But, you know, I was betting on myself to score the first goal. So it didn't really matter. And, and nobody batted an eyelid in those days. That was that wasn't, you know, against the rules. Nobody even thought about it. Nobody thought that people would be you know, 
betting against themselves. Um, and, you know, the spread betting thing was something that became, you know, uh, quite popular in the 90s. And uh, quite a few teams were just getting a kick off and kicking the ball out of play. Um, and people had spread betting. I didn't have a spread betting account, so I didn't I didn't actually bet on that stuff. Um, but, you know, I, I learned a very harsh lesson that, you know, uh, not to get involved in that kind of stuff because, um, you know, we didn't we didn't mess we messed up the, the the kickoff. I messed up the kickoff and didn't didn't kick it hard enough to get it out of play. And so it was a, a lesson very much learned uh, to not mess about in that kind of stuff. And I didn't ever again. Matt, let's talk about your England career, because when I look at the name Matt Letizia and then see eight England caps next to it, that is unbelievable, isn't it? Um, are you yeah. disappointed? Uh, uh, am I disappointed? Yeah, I, I, I would have loved to have had 50 caps, 100 caps. Of course, any any professional footballer would have done. Um, but also, uh, if you'd have asked me as a 16-year-old, um, if at the end of your career you'd have had eight England caps, would you be happy? Yeah. I'd, as a 16-year-old, I'd have probably gone, poor blimey, yeah, eight caps. Um, you know, I'd have been happy with one, you know, because that's that was my dream. Um, I did. So the way that I look at it is that I'm I'm disappointed that I only won eight England caps, but um, I don't have any regrets because I did the best I could do for my club. And after that, it's just down to whether the England manager likes you or not um, and feels that you fit into his team. Uh, and obviously, during my time, the, the England managers there didn't feel like I could fit into the way that they wanted the team to play. Uh, and that's why I, you know, I only started um, three football ma- three games for England, and one of those was abandoned after 27 minutes because of crowd trouble in Dublin. Um, so you know, and the other two starts were, I think they were probably about three years apart. Do you think it was just a coincidence the fact that you'd let down, or, or you know, is that the right wording? Um, Terry Venables and. Glenn Hoddle of not signing for their respective clubs at the time. And of course, <laughs> them two were the England managers when, when you had your caps or, or lack of them. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think if, if neither manager had picked me at all, there might've been uh, a stronger case for that argument. Um, but they did, they both picked me, yeah. um, but just didn't, didn't give me much of a chance. Um, so it was almost, you know, kind of paying lip service to, uh, to the the clamour in the media, really, because I'm scoring a lot in the team, um, uh, and so I don't. I, you'd have to ask Terry and Glenn if if you know if that was the case. I can't really answer that. Surely in 1998, though, Matt, it must have been very disappointing for you because you played in that England B game um, against Russia. And you yeah. said yourself, it is the best performance of my career. You also hit the post and the crossbar in that game. Um, did. You didn't get into the World Cup uh, squad for the, the for the thirty, um, and Gaza didn't even go to the World Cup either. Uh, yeah, that was the that was the massive surprise to me. That, you know, I, the last part of that season, um, I'd finished the season really strongly at Southampton. Uh, you know, I'd scored a lot of goals in the last seven or eight games. You know, I'd scored the hat trick in the B game in the middle of all that run. Um, so it was a, a really good time for me. Uh, and so to to then not figure in the squad of 30 that he picked to go to La Manga was a was a big blow. Um, and I was I was really disappointed not to have got in that 30. I wasn't expecting to get in the squad, uh, but I kind of had thought I'd done enough to get to go to La Manga, where I'd then train and try and have a, a chance to impress the manager and go, right, pick me in the 23 now. Um, and when he didn't pick me, 
I just assumed that he didn't think that me and Gaza could play in the same team. So he was going to take Gaza and that and that would be that. And then when he when he brought the squad down to 23 players and he didn't take Gaza either, yeah. I was like, wow. That is that just blew my mind. Um and I was like, well, hang on a minute. If he's not going and I'm not going, where's your creativity going to come from? Um, you know, and unfortunately, you know, I could have been quite useful in a penalty shootout. When when players don't make it in those squads, Matt, do they get personal phone calls from the manager to say why you're not going? Or is it just a, <laughs> a message saying you're not going? Uh, I, I'm led to believe that some people did get a phone call who were on the fringes of the squad. Uh, but Glenn had obviously um, <laughs> lost my number uh, and didn't feel like he, and he probably thought, well, he didn't want to speak to me three years ago when I was Chelsea manager, so I ain't going to speak to him now. <laughs> so I didn't get a phone call from from Glenn, although I hear that a lot of people did who were on the fringes of the squads. But that didn't, Matt, do, you, do you know that didn't that didn't make any difference to when the tournament started? Me being an England fan, do you know what I mean? I was as yeah, uh, I was as behind the team as as any fan would have been going into that World Cup. Well, that was my next question. Actually, do you, do you still watch England now? And what do you think of England's chances in the World Cup at the end of the year? Um, I. I I watch England in tournament games and in, in you know, in qualifiers that mean something. Um, yeah. I, I must admit, if I've got something else on and, and there's a friendly going on, I, it depends on, you know, if there's a game of golf, instead of watching England in a friendly, I'd probably look at a game of golf over that right now because I don't think friendlies in international football really excite many people, uh, to be honest. Um, so I tend to not, you know, I'll watch friendlies if I'm in the house, uh, but I don't go out of my way, especially to watch international friendlies. However, uh, with the other games that I will, yes, for sure. Matt, what are your thoughts on VAR? Are you a fan? Um, I I'm a fan uh, if it's if it's used properly by the correct people um, is yeah. my answer to that. I think it's a very useful technology, uh, but I think sometimes it's not used in the right way by the people that are in charge of it. Um, if that that's that's my best way of putting it. I think it could be a lot more useful than it actually is, if I'm honest. I think uh, the best thing that they could do to try and help uh, the officials in that room is to have an ex-professional footballer in that room just to give yeah. a little bit of context to situations where the referees might not understand what what has actually gone on uh, on the on the field of play. Um, and I think that's one thing that we could do a bit better. Is that a new job for you? <laughs> Uh, <laughs> I'm all right for jobs at the minute. I'm, I'm okay. <laughs> I don't think I was the referee's favourite footballer, to be honest. I moaned, I moaned a lot at referees during my career. I think I had, I think I had about 47 or 48 yellow cards in my career, right? And I reckon over 40 of them were for dissent. Did you ever get sent off? Twice. Twice. Yeah. Uh, once was in a uh, FA Cup quarterfinal replay, which I'm gutted about because obviously I never got to a cup final. This was our best chance of doing it. Um, we were wandered up against Norwich and I uh, I got a very late challenge from Robert Fleck, uh, who scraped his studs down the back of my Achilles about five seconds after I played the ball. And it was that late that nobody saw it. Like everyone was looking where the ball went uh, and he was really late. And I got the ump and I, and I smashed him one just as a referee took so I got red carded there uh, and we went on to lose that game 2-1 and they played Sunderland in the semi-final with the division below it was the year that they played Sunderland beat Norwich uh, played Liverpool in the final 
Um, so yeah, that was that was a big disappointment. And then I got sent off against Liverpool at home in about 1995 for uh, two mistimed tackles, believe it or not. And this was the only game in my entire career where the manager, Dave Merrington, uh, we played a 4-5-1 formation that day. And I was in the middle of the five, but not just behind the striker. I'm just in front of the two centre-halves. So he's playing me like a like a quarterback. He said, I just want you to pick the ball up off the centre-backs and just spray passes all over the place. Now that in, you know, in itself sounds quite nice. But being in that position meant I had to try and tackle when when Liverpool were attacking, and that was yeah. not my strong point. And I missed time two tackles, and uh, and I ended up getting two yellow cards and, and sent off. Matt, do you think social media is a good thing for current footballers? And no, you know, if you... no, 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 absolutely not. If I was a professional footballer in this day and age, there is no way that I will be having anything to do with social media. It is so toxic. It is ridiculous. And players need to concentrate on their careers and not about all that nonsense that goes on on social media. Are you surprised that the clubs allow it all to happen? Um, it's, I guess it's difficult for the clubs to, you know, how far can they go uh, to impose their will on one of their The players. reason I ask that is because there's so much hate. You know, when, when, yeah. when, a, when a team lose, you can, you can go onto social media, Twitter in particular, and yeah. there is so much hate after a game. There is indeed. Um, and I, I don't understand why, as a professional footballer, you would want to put yourself through that. Um, so uh, I think the, the players themselves should, should be advised uh, by their representatives or whatever to, uh, to not get involved in that stuff. And, and I'm sure some of them do have social media uh, and it's looked after by their team and they, mm. and they probably never look at it, which is a good thing. Um, so as long as as long as they're not looking at the replies and the hate that they get, then it's not going to affect them. Now, in 2022, Matt Letizia at his peak, how much would he be worth? Oh, that's a good question. Uh, how would I how would I try and work that out? OK, so um, if you took Jack Grealish, for example, uh, who had a few great seasons at Aston Villa, um got sold for a hundred million pounds now jack you could argue you know maybe a bit similar in terms of what he was doing for villa than what i was doing for southampton although on a slightly lower scale in terms of scoring goals uh, and making assists um you know i, I would probably say if jack was worth a hundred million uh, given his goal and his assist output um I, i'd probably say about 150 Wow. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I might be a bit tongue in cheek there, but but in all seriousness, I, I mean, if, if I wasn't in my prime, if I wasn't worth more than than Jack Grealish giving the amount of goals I was scoring, there'd be something wrong. Matt, will we ever see Matt Letizia, um coaching or managing? Uh, no, no. Coaching, coaching and managing didn't really appeal to me, um, to be honest. Uh, I didn't like the whole process of uh, the coaching badges um, type thing. I did try and take my coaching badges, believe it or not, back in about 2004 or five, And I just got uh, just boring, so boring doing coaching badges. Honestly, the stuff, the level that you had to drop down to, uh, it was so basic that I just got really bored. And I did it in the winter. It was cold. Uh, I was standing around and I didn't like it. Um, so yeah that was kind of the reason why i think 
because I didn't like as a as a player, I didn't really enjoy being coached or being managed. I just I just liked to be left to my own devices to go and do what I what I do. That was that was how I played football, uh, and so I don't think I ever really got the bug uh, for coaching or managing. Matt, you spent twenty years at Sky. Um, do you miss being a pundit? And do you think that we will ever see you on the TV again being a pundit? Um, I um. I, I still am a, a, a pundit um, for a different television channel now, not in this country. Um, but I'm, I'm working for a, a company called Mola, who uh, an Indonesian channel that uh, broadcasts the Premier League and the Dutch League back to Indonesia. So I've been working for them for the last couple of years. Um, okay. So I still uh, keep my hand in with the punditry stuff. Um, but in terms of uh, in terms of in this country and the mainstream media in this country, uh, no, you won't see me on that again. Matt, I've got to ask, um, and this will be one of the final questions. Um, lots of controversial stuff um, concerning Matt Letitiae in the last couple of years. You've actually come out and said you've been misrepresented in the media. Um, explain what you mean. Um, so uh, there's been a, a lot of stuff um, that is uh, been misconstrued um, from what I've from what I've tweeted. Uh, sometimes that's been my mistake. Um, I've, I've perhaps used bad examples uh, to try and get my point across. Um, and so for that, I take full responsibility. Um, but when I have corrected it, I mean, the, the, the mainstream media will always attack me because I don't actually believe uh, a lot of the stuff that they say. Um, and a lot of the stuff that they have said has turned out to be uh, actually inaccurate or blatant lying. Um, so of course, uh, they're always going to attack me at every opportunity they can because I, I don't believe them. Um, and so that's why uh, I'll never work on the mainstream media again. Um, and, you know, people who know me, people uh, um, who have known me for a long time know how much good I do uh, in this area, in my life, people around me um, for charities that I work with um, and the people that I care about know that I'm not a uh, I'm not a bad person, um, and I do a lot of good for society, uh, and I'm I'm okay with that. You know, when my when my head hits the pillow at night, I sleep very well, um, uh, and I think that uh, we're in a pretty dangerous place when it comes to our freedom of speech in this country, which is uh, one of the things that I've been uh, going on about for the last two years. So, yeah, that's why, and that's why I won't be on the mainstream media again. Matt, last question for you. Um, of course, the Premier League starts in August. Tottenham Hotspur will play Southampton on the opening weekend. Uh, will you be there at the Tottenham Hotspur Stadium? And how do you see that game going? Um, I, I'm hoping to be there. Um, and I'm hoping that the result will be the same as what it was at the stadium last season, uh, which I have to say uh, was one of the best Southampton away Premier League performances I think I've ever seen. And I, you know, I've watched a lot of, I've played in a lot of games and I've watched a lot of games. That game last year at your stadium was Southampton's best away Premier League performance I think I've ever seen. So uh, if we could get half as good as that next season, um, I, that would be pretty good. But I have to say, um, the way that we finished last season uh, didn't really fill me with a huge amount of confidence going into this season. So hopefully I'll be there uh, and hopefully we can we can replicate the result, but I'm I'm sure that it'll be a much more difficult game this time. I'll tell you, Matt, if I had a pound for every time someone said to me, um, a good signing for Spurs would be James <laughs> Ward-Prowse. What do you think? <laughs> do you think he would fit in well at Spurs? Um, 
I think James has got uh, some very good qualities about him. Uh, and I think he has made himself into a very, very good central midfielder. Um, there aren't many teams, uh, I think, that he wouldn't fit into uh, because of his work ethic and because of what he brings, uh, the quality of his of his set pieces. Um, I would like him to perhaps score a little bit more from open play uh, because I think he he has the ability to get into positions. You know, he's so, so good at dead ball situations. I think he needs to improve a little bit when the ball's moving uh, and because he gets himself to a lot of decent positions, 25 yards from goal. And he should, I think, be, be taking, a, taking shots a little bit more often than, than he does. Um, so I, I think... I, I, I'm not sure that James is, you know, going to bring much more quality to Spurs than what you've already got there. Mm, okay. Well, Matt, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. It, it really has. Um, thanks so much for Thank all you, of mate. your time. No, oh, my pleasure, Chris. Good to talk to you, mate. It's lovely just to talk about football for a while. Yes, exactly. And tell everyone where <laughs> they can uh, find you on social media and what you're up to um, in the next few weeks. Yeah, so I'm on um, uh, Getter, which is the uh, my, my uh, social media that I joined back in, in January. That's G-E-T-T-R, uh, and I'm Matt Latiss 7 on there, uh, and I am the same on Twitter, although I, I don't post quite as often on Twitter as I do on Getter because uh, it, it's not worth a hassle, basically. Uh, so I, I post much more on, on Getter than I do on Twitter, so you, you'll, you'll hear a lot more from me there. Uh, and over the next few weeks, you'll probably find me on a golf course somewhere, mate. <laughs> And eating a sausage and egg McMuffin, I'm sure. Absolutely. <laughs> well, Matt, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks so much. I uh, really appreciate uh, your time. And uh, thanks for watching, everybody. Thanks for listening. And I will see you on the next one. Until then, come on, you Spurs. Prize Picks is daily fantasy sports made easy. How does it work? You pick two to six players, and if they score more or less than their Prize Picks projection, you can win up to 25 times your money on any entry. Didn't get your picks in before the game started? No problem. You can get in the game for the second half. Sign up today using promo code FOOTBALL and get your first deposit instantly matched up to $100. Go to prizepicks.com or download the mobile app and enter code FOOTBALL to get your deposit match. Some restrictions do apply. See the website for details. Take care of your property with equipment you can count on, like the Kubota BX and L01 Series Compact Tractors, part of our under 100 horsepower tractor lineup, rated number one for reliability, and Z-Series mowers and sidekick utility vehicles, where durability meets speed. Visit your local Kubota dealer for a demo today. Go to KubotaUSA.com for full disclaimer. Visit GoKubota.com for a dealer near you. Away days are great, but there's nothing quite like playing at home. The same goes for McDonald's. Maximize your home ground advantage with McDelivery. 
Order now on the McDonald's app. At participating restaurants, 18 plus, serving times, delivery fee and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 